A hackathon is an organized event where participants work together to build a product or tool. Hackathons are about creativity and learning and exploration. A developer that is participating in a hackathon is often working on something that is outside of their normal day-to-day focus. Hackathons can provide significant value to the participants. Hackathons have led to friendships and new companies and newly developed confidence that can be critical to a developer who feels uncertain in their ability to launch their own projects. Jonathan Gottfried is a co-founder of Major League Hacking, an official student hackathon league that powers invention competitions. Major League Hacking is a B corporation that is focused on improving the education and community of technology leaders and entrepreneurs and young hackers. John joins the show to discuss hackathons and how he's built and scaled an organization that's devoted to creating systematically successful hackathon experiences. Podsheets is an open-source podcast hosting platform that we recently launched. We're building Podsheets with the learnings from Software Engineering Daily, and our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, you can check out podsheets.com. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. And we recently launched GitHub integrations. It's easier than ever to find collaborators for your open source projects. And if you're looking for someone to start a project with, Find Collabs has topic chat rooms that allow you to find other people who are interested in a particular technology. So that you can find people who are interested about cryptocurrencies or React or Kubernetes or mobile development whatever you want to build a product with. With that, let's get on to today's show. John Gottfried, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for having me. What is the ideal model for programming education? That's a great question. So programmers learn best by doing. When you go off into the world, you know, computer science is one of the only professions where you're essentially paid to learn as you go. And that model applies before you enter the industry, too. So when you look at, like, who the most successful programmers are, it's people who have been extremely prolific outside of a traditional classroom environment. You know, you hear about all of these college dropouts who start working on their projects. You hear about people doing boot camps. You hear about people going to hackathons. Those folks who are seeking out opportunities to build actual real working products are the most skilled programmers entering the industry right now. So just to dig a little bit deeper, how would that be reflected in an educational curriculum? It's really difficult to reflect in an educational curriculum. Curriculum is often designed around testing specific knowledge of concepts, skills, theory, and it's fairly hard to test something abstract like how well did you design the architecture of this system, right? Or how useful is the product that you've created? That's really hard to grade at a core level. And so you don't see it in a lot of curriculum. What you do see is a lot of projects within a very narrow scope or framework. And it's up to the students to figure out how to actually build beyond that. Um, Some of the most novel curriculum does involve a lot of project-based self-led learning, but it's it's really not part of the majority of CS classes. How do 
hackathons fit into a programmer's education in an ideal world? So student hackathons are an environment where students can actually seek out those self-driven learning experiences rather than, you know, sitting around on the weekend and like doing a homework sheet or a quiz, they're going out and coming up with their own project, building a working version of it with people that have a wide variety of skill sets, and then actually putting it out there in the world to get feedback from, you know, their peers and from mentors in the industry. And that's super powerful. There's actually a lot of educational, like, pedagogy that goes along with that. Uh, There have been a number of studies now about the values of learning from your peers rather than super experienced people. There's a lot of research out there around project-based learning and the environment that you need to be in to learn skills. And hackathons kind of bring all of that together in this really like special like bubble where all you're doing is building. And that's a really powerful thing. And, and usually the first time a student goes into that environment, it changes their whole perspective on the world. It's like a switch is flipped. How does it change? What changes about their perspective? I kind of describe it like opening like a black box. Oftentimes before someone has gone to a hackathon and, you know, similar format events, they've never really gone outside of the confines of what they were asked to learn or build, right? Even if you're in a job, a lot of the time you get given a scope and you just have to build to the scope. In class, you're learning the specific topics and theories that you need for your test. Hackathons are often the first place where someone is exposed to the idea that they can kind of do whatever they want. And that's super powerful, especially for programmers, because being able to build software is one of those rare skills that in a very short period of time, someone can build something that could be accessed by anyone in the world, right? And that's functional. And that is technically complex and interesting. And that causes people to realize that they have this like magical, you know, power almost. It's like going to Hogwarts for the first time. Um, It really just changes your perspective on what you're capable of. And it, it often forces people into this mindset of, okay, now I can just learn whatever I want, whenever I want. My sense is that the way that the computer science curriculum has developed is largely due to the fact that in the earlier days programming was much harder. It was you had much lower leverage as an individual programmer. And so the the way that the curriculum is structured reflects that low leverage as a developer. Is that your your sense as well? Why has the curriculum of the computer science university developed in a way that feels so alien to to people who who are actually building modern software projects. I think you're you're absolutely right that a huge part of it is a result of the previous complexity of building software, right? Like even 15, 20 years ago, which isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, Uh, you had to have a much deeper understanding of math to be able to be a good programmer because your resources were more constrained. You had to worry about memory management. You had to worry about, you know, CPU cycles. If you're writing a node app and deploying it to, you know, some cloud server, 
you don't really, you're not really concerned with that anymore. You know, you have a lot more resources at your disposal for a, a pretty low price. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And curriculum is just slow to keep up with that kind of thing. I think the other part of it has to do with the culture of universities. There's a really great book that I love about hacker culture called Hackers by Stephen Levy. And it talks about the early days of hacker communities at MIT, Stanford, you know, a lot of these other like top tier schools. And what you start to realize is that like, even like way back in like the 1950s, right? When computers were really just starting to come about, you had this culture of, let me just like figure it out. Let me try something. Let me, let me see what works, see what sticks. And that's the exact same hacker culture we talk about now at hackathons. The problem is that culture didn't really spread beyond MIT, Stanford, top tier universities. And so for this, you know, decades, it was siloed on these campuses. And I honestly think that's part of why they maintain that status as top tier universities is because beyond their strong research and academic curriculum, they had this hacker culture that was like ingrained into their, their school's DNA. And I think that like the proliferation of hacker clubs and hackathons and extracurricular learning beyond those campuses has created that culture in a lot more places. And people are starting to get the same benefits from it now that, you know, hackers at MIT did 50 years ago. And I think that that is is rapidly like changing uh, how people learn, you know, programming. The structure of a hackathon is dissimilar from how a software engineer is typically working. So the way a software engineer is typically working is in a quiet room, oftentimes by themselves, and they're just solving a problem and they're spending, you know, eight hours on this small problem that is a subset of of a larger application. A hackathon is a is a more condensed a frenetically paced environment where a programmer is working around a large number of other people. Why is it that, that a hackathon is useful, despite the fact that it's it's so different than how a programmer is typically working in a productive context? For one, you're not building as part of a larger team or project. And so the constraints are a little bit different, but I, I think the way you described it is pretty accurate, right? It's a little frenetic. It's a little crazy. You know, when you go to a hackathon that has like a thousand people sitting in a room coding, it's not like a silent environment. It's almost somewhere between a party and a classroom. Obviously, people aren't like, you know, binge drinking and hanging out at the hackathon. It's, it's a much more, you know, professional environment than that. But they are having fun. And for a lot of the students who go, it's a social experience as much as it is educational or professional. And so you can kind of think of it like a microcosm of like what it means to code. When you're working on a project and you get into that like flow state where you're really like thinking clearly and producing good work and, you know, structuring your time and effort effectively, and it feels really good. A hackathon is like a bite-sized, like, chunk of that. And, you know, what you're producing at the end is not, like, a feature on some app that already exists. It's, it's you know, a small prototype. And it's not meant to replicate, like, good architecture or engineering practice. It's meant to replicate 
the process that someone needs to go through to build, you know, an MVP or try a new technology for the first time or, you know, show someone that like crazy idea they've been thinking about for six months. And I think that that's a common point of confusion. A lot of people are like, hackathons don't produce anything real, you know, nothing comes out of them. And I would actually argue that that is exactly the point. It reduces the risk associated with building something if you don't have to worry as much about the value of the output. And it allows people to be more creative because they can take more creative liberties, right? They can build something that doesn't have to show immediate value. And I think that's super valuable from a learning and also just like a creative satisfaction perspective. That's a very important point. The idea that by working on things that may have no practical application or may not even make it to the minimum viable product that you you plan to build to, you can nonetheless make progress as a programmer make progress in your career. Why is that? Why is it important to work on things that basically hit a dead end, that that don't have any productive application? I compare it to how artists learn. Imagine if you're a painter and someone's like, oh, like go paint the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa was not the first portrait, you know, he ever painted. There were hundreds of portraits before that that no one's ever seen because they probably got thrown away or painted over or just lost to time. And I think programming is a really uh, similar skill set in that it is both a technical and creative discipline. And so there's going to be a lot of trial and error along the way to becoming great. And you're not going to produce a masterpiece, nor should you be expected to the first time around. And so when we think about like why that's beneficial, you know, most projects that people work on as programmers, you're either being graded on for class or you're being evaluated on as part of your work performance. And that forces you to think about things in a different way that's probably more narrow, right? You're not necessarily going to take a huge risk with a new technology at work because that could end really badly for your company. And that's probably a good thing, right? Like we don't want all the programmers out there just throwing whatever new library is is like, you know, cool into production because that's not good, you know, architecture practice. But when you're learning something for the first time, that's fun, that's interesting, that's that's cool. And it allows you to learn new concepts that you wouldn't necessarily encounter on a day-to-day basis because there's fewer constraints. You know, for example, personally, I did a lot of the early like hardware development that I ever encountered at hackathons. I never worked in hardware. No one would ever hire me to work in hardware. I don't have an electrical engineering background. Um, but I was really intrigued by it. I wanted to learn about it. And, you know, given that it wasn't something that existed in class, it wasn't something that existed at work. You know, the first place I tried it was like through hackathons and these extracurricular activities. And I loved it. You know, it's something I got really excited and passionate about. And why, why, was it, why was the hackathon environment useful for you to explore that subject? Why wouldn't you just do that by yourself at home? You know, I actually think this comes back to the types of people who are attracted to programming and frankly like the diversity of the industry it's not a safe assumption that everyone who is a programmer likes to work alone in the dark in quiet 
that's a stereotype. You know, it's, it's kind of a cliche that's goes back a very long way. Uh, but I don't think it's accurate and I don't think it reflects like the next generation of people entering that industry. And I really think that hackathons, you know, given that they are both a social and professional environment, give people like opportunities to experience the tech world in a different way that's not normally represented in, in the mainstream. And so for me, as you know, someone who's like fairly extroverted and outgoing and like I like being around people, going to a hackathon and learning those skills is encouraging, right? Because I can sit there. Everyone around me is also working on projects. That's a really mutually beneficial environment to be in because there's energy that comes from being around other people who are doing cool stuff. And part of it is I can literally raise my hand and be like, hey, who here knows how to use Arduino? And someone will come help me. But the other part of it is it's just more fun to be around people when you're working on something. Let's say I'm showing up to my first hackathon what should my expectations be and how should I optimize for that experience? It depends on your skill level. If you're going to your first hackathon and you're brand new to programming, I would approach it with as open a mind as possible and really try to join a team of people who are slightly more advanced than you because you'll get to contribute to what they're working on and almost pair program to learn the skills that they're already familiar with. And that'll be the main benefit you get from it. Like, I actually think hackathons are a great introduction to programming if you're surrounded by teammates who have, like, slightly more advanced skills. I think that if you're more advanced and want to, like, go a little out there, like, outside of your creative box, I usually like to talk to people about what their ideas are. You know, I find that that kind of gets the creative juices flowing a little bit when I hear, oh, this person's working on a music tech hack. This person's working on hardware. This person is doing something wild with like biotechnology, you know, analyzing like blood samples that they found on like Google image, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of really like weird stuff that you see at hackathons. And for me, as someone who's been to a lot, uh, you know, my favorite thing is like, hear what everyone's working on, see if any of that strikes a nerve and I want to work on it with them. And then maybe if it doesn't, it'll inspire a different idea that I've had, you know, sitting in the back of my head. And I think that the folks who go to a ton of these events often just keep a running log of projects. You know, they really have like a backlog of things that they want to try or play with or they've been thinking about. And hackathons are their opportunity away from like school and work to try that. But it, it really does, you know, uh, apply for people of all skill levels. And it's a different experience depending on where you are in your journey. There are some hackathon environments where the expectation is this is going to be really long. I mean, hackathon, it sounds very long. I'm going to be exhausted by the end of it. My stomach is going to hurt from the strange foods I've been eating. And maybe there's this element of competition. Maybe I don't like competition. What are the anti-patterns of, of hackathons? Or, or are those things I, I listed just you know features that, that some people don't like, but many people do like? It's a little of both. I think as hackathon organizers it's important to think about the different needs that attendees will have. You can't assume that everyone wants to stay up all night. You can't assume that everyone wants to like drink energy drinks and like eat junk food for 24 hours. That's like 
terrible, you know? And frankly, like if I go to a hackathon where that's all they have available, I'm leaving to get food, you know? And, and that takes you out of the bubble. I think it is really important as event organizers to accommodate a lot of different needs. And, and, you know, newer hackathons have more resources like that. Like most student hackathons have a sleeping room where you can go like take a nap overnight. Most hackathons have salad available, you know, like like things that are like totally against the cliche of what hackathons are. And I think that that's how you identify, like, is this a good hackathon, right? Like has someone put thought into all of those elements to make it a, better, more inclusive environment. But I think that when it comes to the competition element, like that does attract some people. I don't think that hackathons are, it's not like a super competitive, like crazy environment. I almost compare it more to a marathon. Like when you're running a marathon, which to be fair, I've never done in my life, you're competing against yourself. There's like a very small percentage of people who can actually win a marathon, but most of the people there want to see if they can finish, right? And what their time is. And maybe they beat their previous time. And hackathons are the same way. Everyone's relative like version of success looks different. And I think that's a, a good part of it. And it's okay that some people there are building their first web app ever and other people there want to win, and, and those things can coexist as long as the people who want to win are participating in a way that is, you know, collaborative and helpful to the people who are brand new. And I actually think that, you know, in my experience, a lot of the folks who are super competitive are often some of the best like mentors because they're really familiar with the environment. They have a lot of experience and they want to spread, you know, the the experience that they've had so positively to new people. And so they they tend to invest a lot of time in helping like folks who are, you know, less familiar with hackathons. You started major league hacking. Why was the idea of the hackathon a compelling enough venture to go after that you would build an entire business around hackathons? As with most businesses, it wasn't quite that well thought out in the early days. Uh, And frankly, now we do go beyond hackathons. But really, the thing that drew us in, in at like day zero, right, when we quit our jobs with no money to work on this, was our own personal experience with the with the format and with the community. So I had been a developer evangelist at Twilio. My co-founder Swift had been a developer evangelist at SendGrid. And you know, he was in the process of like selling his previous company. He quit his job at SendGrid and he started working on MLH for maybe like four to six months before I joined it full time. And you know, essentially what happened was there was this small handful of student hackathons that had been around for a couple of years. Like I'm talking five events and we would go to those events as mentors or sponsors or just to like help out. And it was like one of those like little like light bulb moments where you, you sit there and you're like, this is fundamentally changing these students' lives and also changing the environment that they exist within. And people were leaving those events and being like, wow, I want this on my campus too. And it had this like viral spread so that when we actually did start working on MLH in earnest, you know, basically in like spring 2014, we went from like five events to like 40 events overnight because all of these people 
had seen this, had they, they'd experienced it and suddenly they wanted to do it too. And they were coming to us for advice because we had been, you know, the mentors at these events. So attendees, attendees from, oh, yeah. your, from your previous events have been like, we want this, we want more of this. How do we make it? Yeah. And some of that was frankly like competitive. Uh, some of that was like, oh, I want my university to stick out more than, you know, this other university. And there were some like fun rivalries in the early days. Like for a while there was a, rivalry between UPenn and University of Michigan to see who had like the biggest best hackathon. And there were definitely some downsides of that, but it drove a lot like of what? early what the downsides. I mean, you don't really want people competing to have the biggest event. That's not objectively a good uh. thing, but it resulted in some really cool stuff. Like I remember one of the first M hacks at University of Michigan, they managed to hold it in the big house, which if you're a college football fan, is one of the largest stadiums in North America. And so they had like a thousand hackers in the luxury boxes at the stadium. And then in the middle of the night, they let everyone onto the field to like hang out and play Frisbee and like have a good time outside of the hackathon. And that was awesome, right? Like we were shooting off a t-shirt cannon with hackathon t-shirts. That's like an unreal experience. And that was fueled partially by like their desire to be bigger and better than Penn's hackathon, Penn apps. So there was definitely some rivalry that fueled a lot of the growth, but mostly it was people who went to an event as an attendee, had a really great experience and wanted to bring it back with them because people were traveling from all over. Like you had folks flying or driving from like California to, you know, Pennsylvania to go to a hackathon and they were you know, wanting to see more of it. Like once a year is not necessarily enough for them to, to fuel that like drive that they have. Did it start out as a business? Did major league hacking start out as a business? It started as a business out of necessity. (laughs) You know, we don't necessarily like come from a place where we just like have a bunch of money sitting around. So in the early days, we kind of just like got money from our friends, to be totally honest. We, we had a lot of folks who were developer evangelists, and we found ways to help them you know, scale what they were doing with all of these hackathons. As it evolved, it became much more structured. Like over time, we you know, really solidified like what our values were as a company. We really solidified what our products were, and, and that's allowed us to grow. But, you know, it, it's always been a business. Like we strongly believe that it is both important for our employees to have a like meaningful stake in what they are creating, meaning equity. Like I really do think that's important in, in, you know, what people get out of being involved in an early stage company. And I also think that's really important to be self-sustaining. You know, nonprofit is something that we floated many times. We talked to people about it. And, you know, the biggest concern we had was you're dependent on grants and and kind of this like general societal trend of do people want to give money to this thing? And we felt like if we were creating value for the participants and for the organizers and for the companies who are involved, which was, you know, part of the model before MLH, then we would be a more like sustainable organization and because we were a business. So you said you eventually figured out what your products were and what your ethos as a company was. Tell me about the process of finding those things. It was a lot of trial and error. In terms of the ethos as, as a company, like we knew what that was. Like it was 
something that we had internalized long before we started MLH. And it took quite a while for us to write it down in a way that was, I think, digestible to people who weren't us. You know, it's really hard as a founder to articulate your values in a way that other people relate to. And we eventually did through essentially consensus of our team. And a lot of it was taking things that we did or memes that were around the company and documenting what that actually meant to us. So, you know, we, we have five corporate values and, you know, I, I'm always a little bit of a cynic when it comes to corporate values, but these are things that very much represent like what we were already doing that we just wrote down. So we have, we take out the trash, which is this idea that literally like when you go to events, sometimes you have to take out the trash, like it's your job to be helpful, but it also means that we sometimes have to do like the dirty work of running a company. Like Sometimes our CEO is staying late and cleaning the office. You know, sometimes I'm here on a weekend and, you know, I'm doing something that someone else couldn't do because maybe they had a family emergency, right? Like we help each other. We go that extra mile and we we do what needs to get done. Our other value is hackers first. Like that's really the most important thing that we have because it's considered in all of our decisions you know everything we do has to take into account like does this actually help hackers because they're our core constituency at the end of the day we also have mlh provides which to us means that as a larger organization working with all of these different student groups we typically have more resources available and we need to leverage those resources to help all of our local communities because you know we might have a relationship with a company or we might even have money that would make a huge difference in this local group's like day-to-day lives and it's up to us to actually like make use of that in a in a positive way our next value is that learn build share which to us means that we constantly should be like stretching ourselves and learning should be building new things all the time and we should be documenting that and sharing it in an open way so it's really interesting. Like we have a open source hackathon organizers guide that anyone in the world can either contribute to or utilize. Doesn't cost anything. Doesn't have to actually be working with MLH. It's just like a resource we felt should be out there. So our last value is standard of excellence. And this is actually something that I, I kind of borrowed from, you know, previous jobs that I had where your coworkers should be the first people to hold you accountable for doing good work. Like, it's not your manager's job to be looking over your shoulder saying, like, that's not good enough. Your coworkers should be the one saying, like, oh, have you thought about it this way? Have you done something, you know, to the fullest extent that you can be expected to? And everything we do needs to be held to that high standard, whether it's, like, a random email com to a hacker who emailed us or literally, like, a huge corporate partnership. Like, we need to hold it to a really, really high standard. And... Those five values are all things that we had done. They were frankly things that we would say to each other as like memes, like, hey man, like, you know, is this a standard of excellence? Like, have you, have you really like gone, you know, through this with a fine tooth comb? And when we wrote them down, it was like pretty obvious at the end of the day, but it, it was super important for us as a business to articulate that because you know, over time, the people that you're hiring and the people that are joining your team are not necessarily from the community and they they can't read your mind and so you have to have a shared you know language for describing how the company works and we decided to put that into like legal hard coding in our organization by becoming a b corp 
B Corps are a new model of company that allow you to be mission-driven and for-profit. There's actually two ways to be a B Corp. The first is through a certification that is extremely extensive. Like we had no idea when we got into it how extensive it was, but they like look at everything from what's your parental leave policy to do you recycle in your office to what is the mission of your company and how do you fulfill that? Like it's it really like picks apart every piece of your organization and going through the process of becoming certified made us think through things that you know, I think most companies just like don't even know to think about. Once you become a certified B Corp, you have a limited period of time to convert to a public benefit corporation, which is actually a legal designation in the Delaware corporation law that's different from a C Corp or an S Corp or an LLC. So we are major league hacking PBC. And that means that if it ever comes down to it, your shareholders need to consider your mission alongside the profit motive that all companies have to consider. And that's super important because it creates defensibility in our values over a long period of time, regardless of who's running the company you know, 20 years from now. Um, and our mission that's like hard-coded into our bylaws is we empower hackers. Like Our mission is to empower hackers, and that's how we measure the success of what we are doing. And making money and the profit motive is our means to an end to accomplish that. So what has that meant in practice when people have been empowered by your events and the work that you've done? What has that empowerment looked like? We look at it pretty broadly. Someone who goes to a hackathon and has a good experience, you know, that is empowering someone. Someone who learns a new skill through a workshop that we've run, like that is empowering someone. Someone who organizes an event, like that's a huge leadership opportunity. We are empowering hackers that way. And, you know, the lens that we look at it through is like, A, does this pass like the sniff test? You know, does someone you know, feel positively about this and get value from it as like an individual. And then also B, is this a sustainable thing that we can do in the long term? And, you know, sometimes it it does mean that we're doing something unsustainable. Like there are times where like I've been at a hackathon and someone comes up to me and they're like, Hey man, like, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble. Like I can't afford my bus ticket home. Like I lost my wallet. It's like, okay, great. Like I'll just expense you a bus ticket. And you know, a, a lot of companies like, that would be pretty difficult to do like from a from an actual like policy perspective and for us it's something we do all the time and i I think that that's really really important the other part of it is like internal it's how the team looks at itself and like our day-to-day activities as i said like as we've grown more and more people who work here don't come from the hacker community they don't have that like in their blood and so they're often passionate about the mission of like working with students and working in, in an organization that like is mission-driven, but what that means to different people could be different. And so having those values and having like the core mission is a guiding light for people. And it's a framework for thinking about what they do. Like for example, we have a team here called our ops team, and they're doing everything from like booking flights and hotels for our staff to literally shipping like laptops and Arduinos to events to, for people to use. And, you know, sometimes like their thing that they have to accomplish is like, we need to save a little money. Well, when they're making that calculation of like, 
you know, how do we actually save costs here and support more events? Like a big part of it that comes into play is, okay, how do we save money while still providing like a comparable hacker experience? Because, you know, it can't be one or the other. And, you know, the way we look at that is like, okay, let's say we have Arduinos at an event. How many Arduinos does the average event utilize? Oh, okay, they only utilize nine and we usually have 10 available. Great, so if we cut it down, that won't impact the experience, right? And like those types of things really, really come into play. Whereas I think a company that didn't have that as like their guiding light could easily be like, we don't need Arduinos anymore. Like that'll save us $100 an event. You know, for us, it's like, what is the minimum thing we can do that will still actually fulfill our mission? You know, when we're talking about like cutting back and when we're expanding, it's about, okay, how do we serve the most people possible? And that's a global thing now. Like we have events going on literally on every continent. We, we had the one at a, a research base in Antarctica, right? Like it's seriously. Yeah. We had a bunch of hackers who were at the McMurdo research base and last December they held a local hack day there, which is our single day multi-site event all over the world. And on that day, we had an event going on on every continent, right? What do you hack on in Antarctica? Polar bears? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, no, I, I mean, they're, they're scientific researchers. So they're working on uh, a lot of it's like climate related now. Some of it is like experiments that can only be done in an environment that's like literally that cold and dry. Some of it is, I believe, like military or defense related. But, you know, the installation there is, I think has scientists from a lot of different countries. So, you know, not, not my main area of expertise, but you know, they were primarily working on like science related projects. So I'd really like to get an understanding of the business. So you talked about some of the different products you have, like you have a workshop, you have actual hackathons, or is it like a hackathon recipe or you actually do the hackathon for people? Give me an understanding of what you sell and how the business has evolved over time. So the way MLH's business works is by partnering with local uh, hacker communities. So we have three core products. There is our Hackathon League, which is what we've been doing for the longest, and it's our biggest you know, community. We have our MLH local host workshops, which are kind of like technical workshops in a box. You can run them at a meetup, a club meeting, 90 minutes long. It's curriculum we've created. And then the last product is Local Hack Day. And that's what I mentioned earlier, where we have hundreds of sites on a single day doing the same type of event. The way each of those works is through partnership with local hacker groups. And our services are free for those organizers and students to utilize. Um, and that was a very intentional thing because honestly, like college students don't have that much like disposable income. So for a hackathon, uh, for example, They'll apply to work with MLH maybe six months before, and we have a published uh, list of criteria, qualifications, what the process looks like, what we get in exchange, and we go through this whole process with them where we qualify them, we publish them on our website, and then we're literally working with them as mentors leading up to their event. So different events need different levels of like help and mentorship, but like sometimes it's a call in the middle of the night that's like, hey, our biggest sponsor dropped out, like, can you pull some strings? And sometimes it's, hey, you know, we're really having trouble like hitting our budget, right? Like we, you know, need to get buses, but the buses are too expensive. Like how do we deal with this situation? And we have a team of people whose like entire job is 
mentoring hackathon organizers, which is really cool like that exists at all. And the way it's funded is each of the hackathons has local sponsors. So standard to any hackathon you've ever seen, they you know sell sponsorship slots to developer evangelists, recruiters, really whoever they want. And one of the interesting things is we don't really get that involved in that process. Like we'll intro them to sponsors, we'll give them recommendations about how to structure their packages, but they own that budget. They own that you know revenue. And they can spend it on, you know, what they decide. So, so that creates differentiation in the events. Like some events have T-shirts, some events have hats as swag, and that's up to them. You so know? wait, so the organ—it's kind of like a franchise model. So the organizers get to make money off of their events. I don't think I've never heard of an event where the organizers profit off of it, but they control their own budget. You know, the thing to remember is that most of these funds are being processed through a school like club bank account. And so it's not like a for-profit thing that the organizers get. It's more that they control their own finances on a local level. So that's a big part of the model. And then MLH sells global or national sponsorships or services on top of that to companies. So for example, you know, your Microsoft, Google, Amazon, you're probably sponsoring a handful of local events and sending your developer evangelist to them. But MLH provides a scale component that's difficult to achieve on your own. So for example, like maybe every student who walks into a hackathon, regardless of where they are in the world, gets a cloud hosting credit or a free domain name. And that's something that we uniquely can provide that would be basically impossible to coordinate on a one-on-one basis with like 250 different events. And we standardize that. And, you know, it's, it's a very successful model. Like we've been able to drive a lot of like really cool projects and interest from the student side. And... It's interesting because it's super mutually beneficial, right? Like you're a college student. We're basically saying, hey, you don't have to use it. We're not going to require you to do this, but here's a bunch of free credit if you want it one day, which is really fun. And then like I would have loved to get a bunch of free credit when I was in college. So it's really just like a mutually beneficial benefit that we can provide because of the scale we have at localhost and local hack day, like same exact model organizers free for them. We have sponsorships on top of it that, you know, really utilize MLH's scale. And, you know, they'll have local sponsors who pay the operating costs of the event. This must have been an emergent business model. Like, it sounds like you just jumped into the hackathon space. You had a sense for this being an important area to invest in or figure out a business around. But... That business model that you just described could not have existed from day one. Can you tell me about the process of... Because this has been my experience with my software engineering podcast-like company, kind of figuring out the business model was really an emergent process. Can you just tell me about your, your personal experience in more from the building a business angle, how you explored the fissures within the world of hackathons as you were looking for a business model with enough potential to to scale your company? We typically do it through trial and error. And what I mean by that is we will go to a company and say, hey, we have this idea that we think is going to be super beneficial for you. We go through the whole process. We pitch it. We let them know this is the first time we're doing this. They buy it. We create it. If it works really well, we sell it to other people. So in that sense, like, yeah, like we're figuring it out as we go, you know, like most startups. What I will say is 
the types of sponsorships we sell now are actually surprisingly similar to what we sold day zero. What has really evolved is our understanding of the market and like how you package this, how you productize this, you know, what the ROI is for companies. And we frequently hear that like we have much better ROI metrics than your typical sponsorship because we are like super data driven internally. And we really do care like how many students actually utilize the service. Interesting. Well, if not that many students utilize it, maybe they don't want it, right? Like, and so there's certain things there that we think about in terms of like future, you know, partners that you know really informs our decision making. What I'll say from the hackathon side, like funding the local event sponsorship, it is a direct correlation to the hiring environment in the world in that developers are in extremely high demand and a lot of local sponsorships are coming from local recruiters and it's not necessarily the companies local you would think recruiters. about recruiters local recruiters meaning like your company has an office in Chicago I see. they sponsor all their surrounding hackathons not local recruiters meaning like, like contingent recruitment recruiting firms like that's not really a thing for students yeah. but it's interesting because like 10 years ago, the environment probably would not have had enough demand to support that, but the demand is only increasing now. And that is what allows a lot of these events in non-tech hub cities to exist and be successful, is that there is such a hiring demand that people need to be branching out beyond like their traditional you know, career fairs or, or job boards. Yeah, like I imagine every capital city in the United States has software companies that are really looking for good developers. And at this point, there are probably enough software developers, young software developers in all of those capital cities that it would make sense for those companies to sponsor a large top of funnel recruiting engagement. Do you have any benchmarks or something like i know coding and programming education is growing dramatically i don't have a sense for how fast it's growing do you have any benchmarks or numbers or ways that you you have or just little signs of the times that you might have noticed recently that you think about when you're trying to get a sense for how rapidly the world of software is growing yeah so there's a couple of stats that I always look at. One is the number of people getting CS degrees, which, to be honest, like only half of our audience are CS students. So not fully representative, but it's a good signal for, for the general um, trend. There's something on the order of like 40,000 undergraduate CS degrees in the U.S. awarded each year and something close to 400,000 job openings, right? So like there's a huge disconnect there and the demand is really outpacing the supply. I actually am on an advisory board for the CS department at the university I went to, which is uh, Stony Brook. Cool. And to be clear, like I have a history degree, so you know I ended up on the advisory board purely through the work I do with MLH. But I was in one of the meetings recently, and they were talking about how they don't even have enough professors to fulfill the demand for CS classes that the school is experiencing right now. And I've heard that at many other schools as well, that like so many people want to learn this and many of them aren't studying CS. And so their schools are having to like adapt really, really quickly. And that's why you see such a proliferation of boot camps and extracurricular learning opportunities is because they can't fulfill the demand immediately. 
The other thing that I look at is like MLH's numbers, right? So this year, 2019, we're expecting to have about 125,000 people come through our events. That's a crazy number. And it is like three times the number of undergrad CS students in the US. So where are all those people coming from, right? And when we look at it over like the five years of our company, something like five to 10% of all programmers in the US have been to an MLH event. And so you have this like crazy explosion of, you know, interest in in programming, CS, learning to code. And I, I think that like, it's all feeding into each other, right? Code.org doing Hour of Code at elementary schools feeds into people wanting to do robotics competitions in middle school, yeah. which feeds into people wanting to do hackathons in high school and college. And, you know, over time, that's that has compounding value. And when you start looking at, like, emerging markets, you know, like APAC or African countries, it's only more so, right? Because programming is one of those things that is a huge way to get ahead, you know, from a from a life and earning potential standpoint. And so more and more people all over the world are trying to learn programming because it gives them opportunities, you know, like it really does open the door to new worlds, new opportunities, and especially with how easy it is these days to be an online like virtual contractor for companies like it's not just contained to like the bay area anymore you know you could be a developer in mexico city earning a san francisco salary because you're working for a major tech company in the u.s or a major tech company in mexico right like it doesn't matter because that's a worldwide trend how do you scale your company so we're like we're sitting in your office right now you've got probably what 30 people working here 50 people MLH is about 20 people full-time, and we have another 50 or so contractors that we call coaches, and they're typically junior developer evangelists or college students who staff events for us, they produce content for us, they test different curriculum for us, they, they have a lot of different jobs. It's, we look at like a developer evangelist in training program, and we pay them for it, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean... So I've I've tried to software engineering daily like my I want to make a, a a bigger media company but I've always had this feeling of a strain because why would somebody they could go get a, a job as a software developer and software developer jobs are probably going to pay better than a software media job or a developer evangelist job or a job at a at a hacking company a hackathon company. Is it hard to scale an organization like that? Or are you able to find people who this job is so specific and it is it just uniquely fits what they're looking for that it doesn't really matter that they're not gonna get like the Google Google level salary and like the Google food bar. Yeah, tell me about like how you have scaled the recruiting process. When we were starting MLH, I used to read all these articles that were like Recruiting is the hardest part of a founder's job. And it honestly didn't sink in until we actually had to like do it. It's really difficult. And as far as I understand, it's really difficult at a big company too. For us, we 
aren't just hiring developers. Like we are hiring people who have operations backgrounds, who have event planning backgrounds, who have community management backgrounds. And so when you're looking at like the total available pool of people, it's actually much broader. Like some of the folks who work here used to work in like refugee management jobs. Some of the folks here used to be teachers. Some of the folks here used to be like you know, event planners, like wedding planners, like that kind of thing. And it it does open up a lot of doors for us in terms of who we can hire, because we're not just trying to like hire the same, you know, batch of programmers everyone else is. And, you know, frankly, we're not a like VC fueled, like crazy growth company. And we're not trying to be, you know, we are trying to be a sustainable, long-term growing organization. And we don't necessarily want to like, I don't know. We, we, we don't really want to do that artificially. And so the people who work here are often working here for many years. And this is something that they like and they like the people they work with and they enjoy what they do and the community they get to see. And that makes a huge difference, right? Like it's one thing to go into a job and sit in a cubicle and write code every day for a product that you don't really care about. It's another thing to go somewhere where like you know, you get to go like talk to students who like love your company. Right. And that's super different experience. And at least for me, like even as one of the founders, like that's one of the things that keeps me going is like, I go to a hackathon every once in a while. And there are kids there who say like, this changed my life. Or maybe it's not even that serious, but they're like, this is the best weekend I've had all year. Right. And that makes a huge difference in your motivation and your enjoyment of your job because you spend most of your time at work. Yeah, it's interesting. There are all these adjacent, like coding adjacent jobs or programming adjacent jobs. And that's kind of an emergent world because, as you've already said, the, the world of programmers is expanding so rapidly. And there's all kinds of communications jobs and organizational jobs and operational roles that are adjacent to the vast scaling of the programming world. As we begin to wrap up, I want to come back to education. So I've I've done some shows recently about some newer education models. Like we've we've done a bunch of shows about boot camps and I did another one recently about a boot camp in Vietnam. Like basically the the coding boot camp model that has worked in the United States applied to Vietnam and it's working really well. And then I I did a show about Lambda School recently. And given that you're on advisory board of the CS department, they must be aware that their curriculum is kind of lagging behind, right? Like, what's your interaction with them? Are are they figuring out how to update the university curriculum? I do think that they're trying to update the curriculum. Well, one of the things I actually learned recently, which I had not known about before, is they have a class uh, at Stony Brook that... I don't remember the name of it, but I'll describe it and it'll make sense. You go to the class at the beginning of the semester, they pair you and a couple teammates up with a local nonprofit. You just spend the entire semester building software for that, that, that nonprofit. Wow. And I saw that and I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, like, this is perfect. exactly what we're trying to do with that's hackathons perfect. too, right? And so I think that you start seeing those like seeds at a lot of universities. But the other thing to, to remember is universities, especially public universities, are largely funded by research money. And a lot of curriculum is designed to funnel people into research positions more so than, I would say, engineering like tactical positions, right? 
So success for a university doesn't necessarily mean that all of their students become software developers at a big company. Success often means that they are working on a research project that gets funding. Um, that's, that, a real that's, super that's a real conflict of interest. I mean, maybe. I, I don't know if it's a conflict well, of don't, interest. Do, I mean, don't most, most computer science students, they kind of view it as a trade school. I think that's increasingly true, yeah. So I don't know if it's a conflict of interest as much as it is like parallel goals. Like the school wants research students. The school also wants students to get jobs. But sometimes those are conflicting. But I mean, any good university, like these days, they're probably seriously thinking about like what is our post-graduation employment rate, right? You talk about stuff like student loans. You talk about stuff like you know, all of these unemployed people who have college degrees and like universities really do care about that. And I don't know if they have like direct specific solutions right now to fix it, but like it's on their minds. Absolutely. Last question. What's the biggest vision that major league hacking could evolve into? So we look at this as a a global movement more than anything else. If we think, you know, 20 years down the line, I think that this is going to be the mechanism through which the majority of programmers in the world get exposed to the community, like the fun side of programming. I think that we will be supporting crazy projects that people want to build, almost in like a research and development capacity. I think We'll probably be helping people, you know, get startups off the ground. I think that we'll be introducing people to programming as a means to an end for a wide variety of disciplines. And and frankly, I think that like we're already starting to see this, but I think that we will have a profound impact on CS education. We're starting to see like the the early seeds of that where you know, a professor will give you extra credit for going to a hackathon. But I think, you know, in the future, it could be a core part of curriculum. Like, why shouldn't there be so many more courses like the one I mentioned at Stony Brook, where you just build a cool project and that's your learning for the semester? And I think we're going to be the driver for that. And, you know, I said we're going to support 125,000 students this year. There's something like 18 to 20 million developers in the world and more every year. And so there's a pretty big pool of people that we want to impact. And it'll take us time to get there. You know, we've been around for almost five years now, but, you know, there's this trend is not going away, right? Like software and technology are a part of every company's DNA. And the ones that they're not part of yet, they're killing. You know, like it really is this like fundamental shift in how the world works. And it's one of the most valuable skills you can have. And I think that we are a vehicle for people to enter that world in like an ethical and, you know, positive way. Cool. I'm a fan of what you're doing. You know, I, the ways that I have learned programming the most in a most condensed fashion are when I have freedom to explore ideas and when I can uh, socialize with other people about those ideas, it's it, the way that I learn is so far removed from sitting at a desk and taking instruction from people. So I'm glad you're doing this and continued success. Thanks, man. I'm glad I got to do this every day, too. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, John. Wow.